welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 26th episode with me, Nicholas Berlumblad, and... With me, Richard Allen. And this episode, we thought we would do something different. We would um, try to go over a few tips on summer reading. Summer is coming up. August is coming up. The season when, you know, uh, last man or woman out of Europe turn off the light. Uh, <laughs> then we get back in business at the end of August. And so what better way to spend your free days, your vacation, than reading, right? Do you read a lot? I do. And... and um... Yes, I sort of, I read very eclectically. I think is the right word, uh, and, and I still I love bookshops. Still, I go into the bookshop, and and I'm a sucker for those books, which which I now because of something I read understand are not randomly placed, but are actually paid placements <laughs> uh, because publishers pay bookshops to stick them in front of your nose. Um, but e- even even knowing that, there's still a sort of wide visual selection. I'll kind of grab six different books that I see out of a bookshop from different sections and take them away with me. Uh, and that makes me very, very happy. <laughs> it's still serendipity, isn't it, though? Because you go into a good bookstore and you come up with a lot of different things that you never heard of before just because you were pursuing your old interests and suddenly there's this incredibly interesting book that you just have to buy, right? Exactly, I- yes. You, you go in sometimes for one. You know, there is a book I want to go and get. And they say, yeah, you come out with six, and those six have been this has been a little chain of coincidences where you've you've you know just walked past a different section to get to the section you wanted to get to, and something caught your eye. Um, yeah, and yeah, and I can spend I can spend hours just say just picking them up, reading the covers, and then I don't know how you check out a book, but I will kind of read the first couple of pages, and then usually go into the middle of the book and read a couple of pages from the middle of the book to make sure they they didn't just write two really good pages and then it's all downhill from there. So. <laughs> I tried. I usually check the tables of contents to see what, uh, how, what the overarching structure is like because I like I like books that are trying to make uh, more than one argument and you yeah. know the, the American business book usually makes uh, one argument that it that it originally made in a uh, Harvard Business Review article and then it makes it over and over and over and over again and so yeah. I like books that make more than one argument and preferably books that sort of can can change my mind the yes. idea being that I want to read things that make me go, oh, okay, I was entire, I was really stupid about this thing, and now I understand it better. <laughs> yeah. So you don't, yeah, you don't. The book where chapter one is like, here is my brilliant strategy. Chapter two, why you should follow my brilliant chapter strategy. <laughs> chapter three, six more reasons for you to follow my brilliant strategy. Chapter four, and, let uh, me repeat my brilliant strategy again. Yes. And yeah, chapter we, five all... through twelve, companies that have followed my brilliant strategy, <laughs> the case studies. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, we've all seen those. Yeah. Oh. God. God. Yes, they're not great. I agree. I agree. No, I think I think a good book should should um, should either deepen your understanding so that you have entirely new questions when you uh, put it away, or challenge your understanding so that, that the way you thought the world worked was not the way the world worked. And those are the best kinds of books. I really yeah. love those. And, and Nicholas, paper book or an ebook? Oh, it's, I, I wish I could read ebooks because yeah. it would be so convenient, but I'm really bad at it. I love paper books. I mm. love the, I love everything about them. I think they're like the perfect artifact. I, I think you know, holding them, uh, just sort of leafing through a book. I love leafing through a book. I think yeah. it was Schopenhauer who said that the life awake is like reading a book line by line, but dreaming is like leafing through a book oh. and randomly reading a page here and there. And, and I love both you know, the ability to read and sort of underline and write in the margins. I write horribly in the margins. Do you write in the margins? Uh, sometimes I write in the margins. I, just, I found it, we just 
talking earlier, an old copy of the Homer's Iliad where I have written <laughs> constantly in the margins. But yes, yeah, so I, I do with um, I do with books that I'm studying, I have to say, with books I'm reading for pleasure, I tend not to. I, I like arguing with books. So I, I, I sort of, I write angry question marks in the margins. <laughs> and, and, I sort of, and I will write exclamation marks when I think something is important. And, and, and sort of just generally, it's it's a way to to argue with a book. So uh, if, if someone got access to your bookshelves, they'd have, they'd have access to your mind. They could... By yeah, thick, well, they will have access to my, to my angry question marks. I'm exactly. not sure that they equate with my mind. But <laughs> they, they do. I, I, it's a horribly depressing thought, but could, yeah. that could be the case. <laughs> um, I, I'm with you on the paper books. I've tried the ebook thing, and uh, it just doesn't work for me. And it is it is the physicality of the book. And you know, an old book smells beautiful when you when you sort oh, of pulled yeah. it out of a, a shelf. You've not had it out for a while. It's oh, the smell of the book. And then the other thing I have to say is. Um, one of my kind of favorite reading spots is the bath. And uh, ah. I, I like that if I drop my book in the bath, that's kind of sad, but that's 10 pounds gone. If you drop your <laughs> ebook in the bath, that's quite considerably more expensive. So, um, and possibly lethal if you have it plugged in. Yes, I agree. No, I agree. That's okay. We've, we've established that, yeah. that we're both horribly nostalgic <laughs> about books and reading and bookstores now. So, let's, let's quickly move on before people Ooh. catch on to the fact that we're really conservative. Yeah. Um, about this stuff so what's your first book that you you know summer yeah. reading why do you recommend it what's the book what do so, you think so, is the what's the sort of key pitch for the book yeah i mean it's a few and i say i i've sort of picked some books that i um i like to read books that help me to understand something i'm working on often in the tech policy world because that's you know the stuff i work on but it's not like a rant about tech policy, and I read I read those as well because I kind of have to professionally. But they're not what I read for for fun. What I read for fun are often things that sort of veer off from there. So, so actually, my my um, first book is one that I uh, re- really enjoyed recently, which is called Breaking News by Alan Rusbridger, um, the remaking of journalism, mm-hmm. why it matters now. And uh, Alan Rusbridger um, was the editor of, of the Guardian, so became very well known in the UK and I think further afield um, as quite an outspoken editor of a newspaper that um, sort of punches above its weight in terms of its sort of physical distribution, but then its global global reach. And I, I think there are two, basically, well, well, so three British media institutions that reach out, the BBC, kind of obviously. Um, and then you have now a left-wing and a right-wing newspaper, traditional newspaper, that have built up very big web presences that I think go much, much broader than the UK. You've got the Daily Mail on the right and the Guardian on the left. And, and Alan Rusbridger was sort of responsible for you know, The Guardian, really as it sort of moved into its first phase of the digital transition and actually appeared when they made some mistakes, and he goes through that in his book. But really importantly, he, he, what I found fascinating is he talks about the glory days of journalism when when he worked in local newspapers, and new, local newspapers had local monopolies, and they were basically coining the money in <laughs> by taking <laughs> advertising. It sounds familiar. Here were these people with, with a sort of very, very robust market position who were able to, you know, pretty much charge what they like for local ads. If you, if you wanted to advertise a local job or sell a house or sell a car, you kind of had to go to your local newspaper and they were they were able to charge great money. And and then he sort of charged, that was his early part of his career. And then he charts from there as, as everything sort of changes the position we're in now where journalism feels very imperiled. So great commentator on that. And I really wanted to 
find out you know what it feels like for somebody if you're like on the other side i know what, what the tech people feel like but i kind of really wanted to explore what it feels like to be in the journalistic profession and this was really helpful to me oh, it sounds like a great read and and would you say it's um is it one of those is it a fast read is it one of those where you want to read 10 pages and then reflect is it is, is this one for your um for your sun chair, or is this one for when it's a rainy day and you're sitting inside and reading? I would say that um, it's quite fast, actually, for this style. So it's, it's dealing with a sort of important subject, but he is a a very good writer, and and b the sort of certainly the first part of it. I think, in a sense, it's sort of in two parts because the first part is is a lot of it is kind of you know um, uh, the history and and uh, stuff that he was involved in as a journalist. Um, so, so there's a lot of stuff where that's quite fast moving as he's sort of talking through things that happened in journalism. Um, and, and then there's quite a lot that's sort of then around, uh, you know, the relationship between the media and the tech companies. Um, but I say, I would say overall, it's a pretty, pretty fast read because it's so well written. It's written by somebody who really understands you know, how to write, um, uh, uh, and, and does sort of do it in a good storytelling mode. I have to say, stylistically, that is something that I really, really enjoy is, uh, where somebody is able to write, uh, uh it, they're able to talk about a serious subject, but do it through a medium of storytelling as opposed to just kind yeah. of lecturing you. Um, and he's very good at that. I, I agree. That's the best. Yeah, stories stories are much more fun to read than somebody who's just sort of <laughs> trying to tell you what the world looks like without stories. Yeah, uh, and so, people got better with that. <laughs> on storytelling, I have I have a, the one uh, book that I would say that sort of follows on from that and really is concentrated on storytelling as a tool and as um, a method, I think, is a book called Sources of Power, How People Make Decisions by Gary Klein. It's a, it's a, it's a really, it's an old book. I think it's, it's more than 20 years at this point, but it's written by, uh, by this guy, Gary Klein, who is not a professional academic, but sort of a psychologist and advisor and consultant. And he's really interested in how people make decisions. And he's trying to figure out, you know, what the existing decision models suggest, and then he's testing them. So one really brief example is that he would say existing decision models suggest that we first generate a lot of alternatives, and then we evaluate the alternatives, and then we decide to go for the alternative that we think is the best of all of the alternatives that we have generated. Now, he examines how professional people like firefighters uh, make decisions, and that's not it at all. What they do is that they uh, look at the situation, recognize it, and then they apply whatever worked before. And so that's a radically different way of making decisions. And it's often extraordinarily effective because it allows you to sort of see patterns and then go for an option. They, they don't even generate all of those uh, generate all of those alternative options that you usually think people do. They just go for the one. And if that doesn't succeed, that's the point at which they start to look at other options. And so... He, he has all these different studies, one of which is an interesting study about chess players, saying that the, the difference between an advanced chess player and a beginner is that the advanced chess player sees fewer potential moves, sort of eliminates a lot of the moves that the beginner sees. And so it's, it's a really good book. And it's become, I think, it's got a renaissance now because, in a sense, Gary Klein is the anti, anti-Kahneman. 
He's, mm. he's sort of, he says, the human mind is beautifully constructed, really well evolved to deal with complex problems through pattern recognition. And you shouldn't listen to the people who tell you that you have horrible biases mm. and that your mind is flawed and broken and that you're really stupid. You should actually really try to go back to and respect the way that we think. And one of the ways in which we think, and he gets this too, is, is actually through stories. And he is, he is the originator of the method that is called um, narrative foresight. Um, the idea that you, if you really want to sort of predict or understand a situation in depth, what you do is you place yourself uh, 18 months in the future and you say, this project went horribly wrong. What happened? And then yes. you write it out. And you write it out, then you write out the story of how that went really, really wrong. And, and sort of you can see all of the different things that can go wrong, and then you can adjust your project, or you can even abandon it if, if you want to. And, and it works because of this really interesting thing, and that is that humans have a really good, Paul used for the language, bullshit detector. Right? <laughs> we have this ability to see when a story veers from the probable. This is what Aristotle teaches. He, sort of, he says that we have this ability to see what's credible, what's sort of what really could happen, what's probable in a story. And a good story is mimetic in the sense that it really uh, depicts uh, reality. And so when we rewrite it out, we force ourselves to uncover the plausible paths that could lead to failure or success. And so Klein is just this, it's just a really good read because right. it, it forces you to think about how you think and not sort of just jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, I have all of these biases and there's all this noise and I'm so bad at thinking, I, I just need a checklist, <laughs> which yeah. is sort of the, the bad version of Kahneman. Now, interestingly, Kahneman, who's a gentleman and a scholar and a brilliant man, really likes Gary Klein and often recommends him and sort of has, has I think, um, uh, engaged with Gary Klein over the years. And, and so there is no need to choose between the two of them, but it's a, a really great counterbalance. Thanks. So it sounds like it... it um... He may be the originator of something which I have used at work, but never, never really kind of thought where that came from. Uh, ironically, which is um, uh, when we're embarking on a project, the, the philosophy is um, hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Yes, so yes, you, very much you, so. Yeah, you figure out like the bad things. You you spend a lot of time figuring out the bad things that could happen, uh, and and plan. Make sure that you've got some sort of coverage for it. it doesn't mean that you let it sort of paralyze you. But that sounds like your your um, description of this sort of narrative, future narrative model sounds very similar yeah. to that. Yeah, mm. it's really true. And, you know, it's it's Kahneman said at some point, imagine how many wars could have been avoided if the generals were forced to write out, this is how we lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we'd never start it. Excellent. Um, yeah, and, and and so that's something I think there's a, a lot in there I think that we could all, all take away. This, this sort of notion, though, I just want to dig into a little bit of, or again, it almost sounds like follow your instincts when, when so much of what we're reading today kind of goes, your instincts are wrong and terrible, as you say. Yes. Uh, so just to see, so is, am I oversimplifying that sort of following your instincts no. is not a bad strategy? No, it, it's not a bad strategy, assuming that you have trained and honed your instinct over yeah. time. Like, that's the thing with a chess player. That's the thing with... Uh, the firefighter and there's this there's this really interesting and horrible example of a huge forest fire uh, where a couple of firefighters uh, were caught the forest fire was climbing up a hill and uh, they were all trying to outrun it and you can't outrun a forest fire it just doesn't work and and uh, they were they were sort of all trying to outrun it and they were dropping all of their stuff and one of them stopped and then set fire on the grass before him. 
So that grass burnt out, and so there was no fuel for the fire, and then he threw himself down in the space that he had created, and he was the sole survivor of that particular incident. And so what he had was pattern recognition of what fire does, and what he also had was the unique ability to apply that to the situation he was in and say, fire runs faster than I do, then I'll let it do the running for me, and it will clear the grass up the hill, and then there will be no fuel for the fire that's behind me, and then I'm safe. And so that kind of thinking, you could say it's biased and you could say that sort of, you know, he he didn't generate the options, but if he had generated the options, he would have burned to death. So it's yeah. really interesting. So, and so, so there are several examples like that in, in the client's work where where he suggests again and again that that you you really have to rely on cognitive habits and yeah. not just not just sort of dismiss them as biases. Yeah. But they're not all, yeah, follow your instincts, but not all instincts are equal. <laughs> no, not all. And, and sometimes yeah. you end up wrong and you really need yeah. to, I mean, you, he's no stranger to, and I think this is this is what's, what's sort of the meta point here is if you articulate this and if you start to sort of respect your own mind and your own ways of thinking, then you can shift between the different modes. You can say, yeah. what do my instincts say? And not dismiss them as biases, but just say, what do my instincts say? And why do they say that? And then you can sort of start acting and do the pattern recognition and get new feedback and sort of follow your follow follow whatever path you want and i i just think it's a it's a really good uh, it's a really good way of reminding us that our minds are are wonderful tools fascinating so, so what's you what's your next well, book i think, yeah, I think <laughs> it actually sort of runs on from there it's not in, inconsistent because again it's talking it's very much on the notion of biases which is um the righteous mind by jonathan Haidt, which which is subtitled why good people are divided by politics and religion um and, and, but again i think there's some consistency there and that the, what, what he's essentially what well, he, he's sort of helping us to understand that we have those biases uh very strong political biases and and that's to explore why that might be um and then talked about you know then the impact that has on the world and and i find that fascinating again having dealt with all of the fake news issue and the issues are still going today i think i think it was last week it was announced that donald trump is suing social media companies because uh uh alleged bias against him and we, we were in that position in social, or still in that position in social media companies where, you know, that broadly speaking, people on the left say that social media companies are far too permissive and allow people on the right to run riot inappropriately. And people on the right say that social media companies are far too restrictive and are, are over-censoring them and playing to the namby-pamby woke crowd. And um, in really trying to say, like, is is there is there a happy medium? Is there a point you can get to, which is right, correct, where you're censoring the right amount? Um, and I think when you read Jonathan Hayes, it's kind of well, no, <laughs> because <laughs> because people, you know, they they you know, why why do we never sort of end up with a uh, a sort of commonly agreed uh, government that's supported by everybody on all sides? Why do we end up in these kind of tensions? Why are we always divided? Um, is is what he explores, and I think as I, said, I found it really helpful to kind of work through and uh, the, some of the examples that he uses to, to kind of understand. Well, if that's where people are coming from, you know, the solution of the perfect uh, uh, equilibrium is not going to be possible in politics and religion and similar related fields. And so, having decided that's not possible, you then need to think of what your alternative strategy is which I think in many cases is just to be more upfront and explicit. You know, it's not, uh, it's not to, 
Well, it, it's not when you're doing something. It's to be explicit about the fact you know you're going to piss somebody off. Like it's a, yes. you know, our hate speech policy is neutral, you say. No, say, look, our hate speech policy is going to mean that more people on the right get more content taken down. It's going to piss you off. But we still think it's the right thing to do. Is a much better way because then you're defending something that you can at least defend, whereas the trying to defend something as neutral that is clearly not perceived as neutral by a large constituency of people um, is as you're unhiding to nothing. I like that. I like that a lot. And I think there, there, there it's a theme in a lot of books that have came, come out recently that, 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 you know, the human mind was not set up to seek truth uh, or not solely to seek truth. There is a, it seems to me there's a connection to a book I read, I read recently by um, a cognitive scientist called Julia Galef. It's called hmm. the Scout Mindset, and she sort of she has this idea that that the mind evolved for basically two different things. One was to scout and seek novelty and explore and discover and invent, and that's sort of one part of what our mind does. And the other part is the soldier mind, and uh, cognition there is solely for social cohesion. The idea is that you're sort of you're just thinking in order to make sure that you stay together as a group and that you have the ability and the means to to think together collectively, collaboratively with the group. So the value of cognition there is to seek cohesion. So you seek cohesion or you seek novelty, but none of those are actually pretty, are, are especially conducive to seeking truth. <laughs> so, I mean, their truth then becomes a secondary concern for evolution when it designs our cognition. And that seems to be, it seems to be sort of, at least seems to be a tangential um, take on what you're saying. Exactly. Is, am I reading that? Yeah, it's sort of my group right right along. And, and um, we have a small example over the last week that in, involved your neighbouring country. There was uh, England went through to the final of the European Cup, Euro 2020, which it is weirdly called in 2021. But um, Euro 2020, uh, England got through the final with a penalty <laughs> a decision that everybody in Denmark knows was a, the was a wrong decision and everybody in England knows was the right decision. And yeah. um, had the decision uh, been the other way around, had it be a Danish player who had been taken out by an English player, you know, in the same circumstances, the reverse would have applied. And so, so the truth of the decision of the penalty, which is the most important decision of the last week, of course, if you're in Denmark or England. Of course. <laughs> um, uh, but the truth of that decision is, is, is sort of entirely uh, shaped that way. And, and there it's sort of more explicit. We can all look at the video and you could, in theory, sort of come to a technical conclusion. But so many of the decisions we make are like that. They're like these penalty decisions where where the truth is in the eye of the beholder you know it's what you yeah. want to believe about that decision that really matters and, and that has a function and again this is where sort of it's easy to dismiss that and say oh soldier mind makes you stupid but no it actually helps us think together it helps us gel as a group and we needed to gel as a group evolutionary from you know the simple survival perspective so so there is a function to it that's just not as important anymore and we need to shift over some from that sort social cohesion seeking to truth seeking and, yeah. and that's and that's the challenge right our evolution is telling us seek novelty seek cohesion and we're saying uh, yes but we'd also like to seek truth <laughs> yes yes and 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 sort of the 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 net result of that is is uh i think a, a lot of literature on this theme where we're trying to explore how we can do that how we in a, can overcome our evolutionary tendencies perhaps 
and social, social media, I think, is exaggerated because you are simultaneously part of this mega group, the group of all Facebook users, how many billion of them there are now, yeah. and at the same time, a member of a, like a whole host of other smaller groups, your national group, your ethnic group, your religious group, and so on. And so, yes, we've got this this sort of groupishness, and some of the demands that are being made as to say we want you know a single truth for the the group of all Facebook users. Uh, but you're doing that from a perspective where you have these say, multiple, multiple truths that come from your perspective as a member of particular slices of, of those uh, totality of Facebook users. And so, yeah, huge challenge. I don't, I, I, can you equate it? And again, the, the risk is you end up sort of in a council of despair, and I don't think we want to go there. Um, uh, <laughs> no. The risk is how does one live uh, with your sort of the positives of group membership uh, whilst while sort of moderating the negatives of your group memberships, um, and and there is a way there, but but I think what's happened in a sense with the internet is is we've created new kinds of groups without really sort of working through all of the the sort of impacts that that will have on us. And and larger groups. I mean, this yeah. is the other thing that I find interesting as well. I mean, they, it, and and let's nerd out on this a bit because it, it mm. is interesting, right? The uh, the, the other book that I had in, in my larger pile uh, is called Thinking Big, How mm. the Evolution of Social Life Shaped the Human Mind. And it's written by uh, a couple of different authors, but the one that stands out uh, is Robin Dunbar. And Robin Dunbar is an evolutionary psychologist that has looked at um, people's and other uh, primates' brains and have sort of just correlated how large are the flocks that primates organize themselves in vis-a-vis their neocortex. And then Mm. he predicted how large is a possible flock for humans, given that we are primates. And so it ends up that the Dunbar number, which is a really well-known and super interesting number, uh, is 160. Uh, So that's about how many people... Uh, humans can interact meaningfully with without any technology, and then technology, of course, gives us a larger Dunbar number and sort of increases it. But but it doesn't increase it to to four point five billion. <laughs> so then we default into the small groups again, and and we call that polarization. But but maybe it's just sort of a cognitive self defense act where we aggregate in smaller groups and define ourselves vis-a-vis other groups because we just can't think in a group of a billion people. Yeah. And so it's it's I, I had this conversation with somebody else the other day. And, you know, there's a real live question of how connected we should be, you know, how yes. many degrees of separation there should be between us. And I think there is there is something about that that's uh, deeply fascinating the, as well. The Dunbar number, I'd say, was, was one that came up regularly in early days at Facebook. Um, something we used to yeah, refer I can to imagine. quite often. We created technology that kind of went beyond that. Um, or, or, you know, create the potential for you to realize it in many cases, because many of us were not even able to, you know, keep, keep a few dozen relationships together because of distance. But you're right, in, in the sense, if the, if, the, um, if the process that we've undertaken and the internet generally undertakes is to remove friction, let's just get all of the friction out so that we can, you know, commune with people around the world instantly all of the time in, in very high quality. It may be that the part of the story of the next decade is how do we put friction back in? And actually, if you look yes. at some of the regulatory measures, they are kind of pretty much you know explicitly trying to do that how do how do we how do we increase uh social friction to keep groups and individuals a little more distant from each other um because uh, yeah. when they get together it causes problems 
Right. And you have, I mean, the, you remember the classical Milgram experiment to six degrees of separation, mm-hmm. right? Where they, uh, I think it was Granovetter perhaps. Uh, so um, where they, they tried to check how many degrees of separation are there between two people in the world and, and the number that generally came up was six. But your, your Facebook mm-hmm. scientists are saying that, no, no, with Facebook, we've now made, been able to reduce it to 3.6 and almost half that number. And, and maybe one of the things, you know, at least I think this is true for a lot of politicians that I've talked to, they would say, well, maybe a little bit less connection. Yes. Maybe that would be good. You're 10% less connected, 10% more distance and degrees of separation. I, would, I think that would be good. Yes. And, that, and that is a, I think that's a real discussion that we will have in, in the coming decades. Yeah. Um, wow. Oh, there's quite a lot in there. Um, what, what else What's your you next have? book? Oh, no, no, I think, it's, I think it's your turn. Yes. Right. So I'm, I'm um, uh, actually going to go for, let me go for a leisure book, if I'm allowed to, and then I'll come back to another sort of serious book. My leisure book is um, China Mieville, The City oh. and the City which is um, Jana Mievel's an a quiet taste of British science fiction author um, who who I just find like super challenging because he creates these worlds that you the, you can imagine uh, they sort of speak a lot to to real life um, but they're like completely weird at the same time and it's very sort of clumsy description but this one the city in the city is is uh, again to, to the subject we were just talking about is right on point it is it describes a city uh, which is actually divided into two cities but they both occupy the same physical space um, mm. and the way in which they do that is that the people in the city are trained not to see the people or elements of their surroundings that belong in the other city. Uh, <laughs> it sounds unreally described, but it, it's really well worked out. And it's basically it's a crime story as well about a crime that takes place in this environment where you have to sort of uh, cross from one world to the other. But when I say cross from one world to the other, that is crossing from two between two worlds that live in the same physical it's the same street it's the same physical space um <laughs> but you know if the crime is committed on uh by two people who live in one of the cities uh, the people who live in the other city who may be a meter away don't see it or have anything to do with it uh <laughs> it's got to be investigated by the people who are in the same city so it's it's anyway, it's fascinating it's a sort of imaginary eastern european um city w- with this happening and as I say it's all about this sort of notion of um, how you can have two different societies living in the same space, space uh, with different sets of rules and different cultures. And then there's a police force that, that stops what they call breach, and breach is where people go across to the other side. So they, and occasionally it happens with tourists who come there, and tourists are, you know, officially in one of the cities and they go oh look mummy over there and they point to something that's that they're not supposed to see even though it's right in front of their faces and then that has to be investigated and tourists have to be expelled and it's <laughs> lovely well, i i i generally sort of chafe against metaphoric readings but but one of the metaphors that comes to mind is 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 this sort of a society incredibly or increasingly that more divided, more unequal, the sort of where where we literally live in different worlds, although we live next to each other, uh, because we have this virtual persona and we have you know our economic status, etc. And although we live in the same cities, the cities are are sort of slowly falling apart. And it's much too facile a reading, but yeah. it sounds as if there could be something like that. But I think we also have it physically. You and I have spent time in San Francisco, and and in San Francisco again, interesting. In the book, he describes there there are different kinds of zones. There are zones 
that where which are purely one city or the other, and then there are zones which are crosshatched, which are which are mixed. And I just think of San Francisco, and you had you know zones that are full of Silicon Valley millionaires, and you have the Skid Row zones that are you know full of people literally like shooting up drugs on the street. And then you have these crosshatch zones where a tech company would plonk its office in one of the zones where where a lot of the people are on the street and, yeah. and living these sort of miserable lives, and and they would learn to ignore each other. Um, and then where they didn't, when there was a breach, uh, it sort of became a thing. And often actually reflecting very negatively on the tech companies who were seen to be sort of very dismissive of these people who were their neighbours and had every right to be in the streets as well. But it was, as a, as a, as not just sort of a metaphor, but as a description of real life, uh, there are quite a few places, and San Francisco comes to mind, but also quite a lot of um, metropolises where you'll have a wealthy population, typically, and a, a you know poor population, and it's almost as though they do not see each other, even though they live in the same spaces. No, I, I, that's 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 really true, and I think it's now we shouldn't I, a good good uh, literature shouldn't be reduced to metaphor, and I think mm. it's probably much better to just read it. But that's a really interesting uh, reading of, of of that particular theme. I, 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 I hope, and Sweden is an example of a country perhaps where there's less of that. I hope, or maybe that's one of the uh, because you feel it always feels externally you're much more sort of unified uh, across the social and economic spectrum. I, I, well, I think I think we might be trending in the same direction, though. It's a good question yeah. because I, I do believe that that over the last couple of years, at least, we've seen Sweden trend much more in the direction of a country that has uh, parallel worlds, parallel yeah. lives within the same city structure. Um, and it's it's a consequence of uh, a lot of different things, of social change, of immigration, of failed integration, of a lot of different problems that that just have proven too intractable for for uh, for a tightly divided parliament to solve. So yeah. so it's something that's it's a really I think it's a really interesting metaphor. I like recommend the city in the city if you're if you're the interested in these issues and, and want to stop your own cities perhaps being divided but yes um what do you have next Nicholas, for us well i'll go with the leisure read too and this one will be quick because this is this is this is this is i i actually an important principle that we didn't touch on in the beginning is that i am ashamed of reading nothing i love to read high and low and i think this is this is a thriller uh by a guy called john Connolly. uh if i i, I believe he's an irish writer who writes about the detective charlie parker I, and he exists in sort of this shadow land between the detective novel and the horror story and i i just think it's so masterfully done it's fun it's fast paced it's noir with a touch of the supernatural and it's it's just incredible and there's a whole series of them and i love that because that means that every time you sort of finish one you can happily look forward to the next one and you can start to sort of read through them and it's just for anyone who wants to read a detective story, but also, you know, in their youth, enjoyed the occasional ghost story yeah. and not to have it be a, a, a cringy ghost story with, when, you know, different spooks or anything like that. It's no, no, this is, this is much more of a, there's a layer of interpretation in which Charlie Parker is, is, uh, part in a much older context and a much older network of of angels and devils and demons and other dark creatures and it's i really like it because it's it's just so well done where, where is it set 
So it's it's usually set in the U.S. Uh, yeah. and different parts of the U.S. And there are all of these really quaint characters, like the Fulci brothers, who are described as as barely contained natural disasters in human form. And mm. so there's like there's there's this joy of language as well, and yeah. and there is just a a lot of of uh, moments where you sort of laugh out loud moments. I don't know if you read Terry Pratchett. Yeah. There's there's a little bit of Terry Pratchett in some of the language, although there's a lot of Raymond Chandler and some Stephen King as well. And so it's a, it's it's just this. I think John Connolly is a brilliant brilliant detective and thriller writer, and I really enjoy his books. So that would be my my leisure alternative. A, a now we have to go back to being serious. Oh yes. what, um, what's on your <laughs> what's on your serious? The next time, the art of statistics, learning from data, data by David Spiegelhalter. Oh, that brought us brought us back quickly, didn't yeah. it? <laughs> it is, um, yeah. So, so it's, yeah, from the supernatural to learning from the data. art of statistics. Yes, the art of statistics. But this one is um, this one's been just like it's a book of the year. What is a book for this year and last year and this year? Um, uh, uh, I have to confess, my maths. Uh, I'm. I was good at arithmetic. If you stick me behind a bar and ask me to add up, you know, the price of seven complicated drinks in a round, I'm absolutely fine. Like, like I can do that. But, but once we hit um, calculus at school, I still don't actually know what calculus means. I kind of just lost it. Like my maths, (laughs) my maths is very arithmetical and very not, you know, um, pure or, or theoretical maths. So I kind of um, uh, have always felt a bit of a failure because I was quite good at maths until I hit these sort of brick walls. May have been a teacher thing. This may be a lesson there. Um, anyway, but the other <laughs> statistics sort of uh, tries to make a particular form of maths um, very accessible to people like me um, who, who have not sort of been deep in it for years. Uh, and obviously in the context of COVID, it's been absolutely critical for, for if you're reading the news or trying to follow the news or just trying to understand what's going on like to have some understanding of what all of these statistics around COVID mean um, sort of drove me to the book. Uh, but I'm actually now finding it very useful because I'm working on other stuff that I'm working on. For example, I'm looking at transition to electric vehicles. And a lot of that's about analyzing the data and seeing, you know, where take up of electric vehicles is happening. So again, statistics really important for, for so much of what we do. Um, how, how are you, Nick? How do, I don't know I, how your maths level is. How, how oh you... God, no, they're not good. I I, I studied uh, math in in high school, um, so I know what calculus is roughly, perhaps. If yeah. you pressure me on that point, I do like math. I think math is is relaxing, and I I for that reason had a hard time with probability theory and statistics because they're not mathy. They're they're sort of they're it's a different way of thinking. It's a way of thinking that that uh, is is. I think profoundly different from calculus or arithmetic or even geometry, and and so I have actually read this book as well, mm. and I can recommend. I, I wholeheartedly support your recommendation. I think it's a really good book that provides a level of literacy in a tool that is essential for the modern citizen. If you don't understand statistics, you're going to have a hard time to argue anything, and not just COVID, right? You're going to have a hard time to argue how you deal with you know, poverty, how you deal with crime, how you deal with all these different things. Yeah. And so I thought it was a, a, a brilliant book. And, you know, at times I had to stop and take <laughs> paper and pen and sort of try to write out the examples. And I thought that was really good too. And so uh, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, if you learn one thing this summer, statistics might be your thing. I think Maybe. that's the thing that you will have most. If you don't know your statistics in and out, I think learning statistics is 
really a, a, a good investment. Yeah, and I think, and it's critical for understanding risk. And back to back to the the regular theme of our podcast, which is um, tech regulation. Again, so much, so many of the decisions that are being made are, are um, decisions that say, "Look, this regulation is justified because of this level of risk." And and understanding that level of risk is critical. So so and whether or not actually the proposed solution will have any impact at all on it. I mean, if if your you know your problem is that you know uh, X percent of uh, decisions that are being made by tech companies are wrong, um, you need to know that the solution could possibly increase uh, X to whatever percent it is that you you need that to be. And so understanding like how likely that is, how probable that is, and understanding and we keep talking about scale. What what happens when small probabilities uh, are, are applied to kind of high frequency events, uh, yeah, as opposed yeah. to high probabilities of low frequency events? Like all of this sort of stuff is really critical if you're actually going to have you know evidence based regulation that works. Um, so, yes, and also knowing where to draw the line, right? Where where you can't apply probability or where you can't reduce an uncertainty to a risk, but you have to say, okay, I don't know. I really don't know. And I think that that's something that is a sort of a lost art in, in policy and in politics to, to clearly state what we do not know, where the lines and limits of our, our knowledge uh, are drawn. I yeah. think that's another part that the book does really well. He, he does. You're absolutely right. So that... that, that um, uh... Yeah, that sort of filling in the filling in the blanks and not not uh, understanding where there are blanks after you've sort of uh, decided what data you have, I think is a, again a critical part of the understanding that the book gives you. Um, it's yeah. the old sort of garbage in, garbage out thing, isn't it? Of, uh, <laughs> yeah. If you if you um, haven't got great data to put in, like, don't force it. <laughs> uh, you know, be really sort of ruthless and rigorous about understanding whether or not you have sufficient data to, to inform a decision. Um, and it, and if you haven't, then find a different route. And, and I certainly found that was true. I mean, there, there was often, you know, um, just there just wasn't the data on some phenomena on the internet that people wanted because the phenomena often were too new, or because there's no sort, sort of um, uh, effective means of collecting the data in a rigorous enough way that would make it meaningful. And so you're left with uh, the old saying again that. Um, uh, evidence is not the plural of anecdote. Uh, <laughs> we would be we would be adducing evidence for something happening merely on the basis of a number of anecdotes uh, that it happened. And again, he really I think um, helps you to sort of move on from that kind of thinking, which is all too common in politics. I have to say. Oh, it is, <laughs> and it's actually the the subject of my next recommendation. Ah. Uh, there was a company that made this into a habit, is saying that anecdote certainly the plural of anecdote is evidence, and it was. It was a company called Symbiomatics, and the book is If Then, How One Data Company Invented the Future by Jill Lepore. And so this is this is one of the books. This is it. This book does something that I really love, and that is that it takes our current debates and it shows very clearly that they're not new, and it also shows how this has happened before. Because what this essentially uh, is a story about is a story about the company that uh, says that it can predict politics and change elections. And it's the Cambridge Analytica of its time. Yeah. And a lot of people went into Simulmatics and it was 
they were identified in a highly contentious article as the secret weapon behind Kennedy's win of the presidency. And they then drove that heavily. They built new models and they were all crap. All of those models were really, really bad. It was garbage in, garbage out. But everyone believed that they had control over democracy in their hands because it was based on data. And they believed that the, the sort of analytical models would take over democracy. And they believed that with these models, you could predict and manipulate people into voting for people they didn't really like. They even called this machine they had uh, the people machine, which I think is a good alternative wow. name for Facebook, by the way. You should call it the people, people machine. machine yeah. <laughs> and, and sort of it was it was essentially they wrote they had this old programming language that you will know fortran and wrote oh, yeah. lots of if then statements and used those ah. if then statements as the model of what the electorate would do given certain things and peddled these models as terribly powerful and a subtext in the book that i also think is is really uh it was really honest is asking whether cambridge analytica was any different or yeah. they were just also a fraud. And I thought that was a really interesting discussion. And the book, the book sort of brought home to me that, that this idea of the programmable society, the manipulated electorate, the sort of the democracy that can be predicted and so changed and won, is, is not a new idea. It dates back at least to the 1960s and probably further back than that. So it's a it's a well-written, mm. funny excellent story that sets our current debates in perspective. I'm going to have to get a hold of that. There's a lot in that for me as well. And when did they go out of business? Do you know? Oh, I think they slowly went out of business in the 70s, if yeah. I remember correctly. And and they sort of more or less petered out. They were yeah. sort of trying to sell all kinds of predictions, etc. And, and then suddenly became, uh, I think it says, let me see, Simulmatics underwent bankruptcy proceedings in a courthouse in Manhattan on August 26, 1970, a day that happened to mark the 50th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it does, it, it, um, it, I think the lines to Cambridge Analytica are there. And again, as somebody who's been in elected politics and an active politician, uh, the reason that snake oil exists is because there are people willing to buy snake oil and politicians are in the market for it. And I do think they were, you know, if it's somebody that came with Analytica with some smooth talking front people turns up and says to a politician, you know, I can win the election for you uh, and they do it persuasively enough, then there's always going to be some sucker buying, <laughs> I think, out there. Uh, and my understanding certainly of, actually in the US was that, you know, the um, other data and other models that are, were being used by US politicians outperformed the stuff that Games Analytica did. Was outperforming, they may have performed, whereas the Games Analytica didn't. You know, and there, there is a sort of you know, baseline of um, understanding of the electorate that all the political parties have in, in countries like the US and the UK. Uh, and the question for the snake oil salesman is, are they going to get you beyond that baseline? And of course, they'll mm. all tell you they will. And in most cases, they won't. I mean, the, the baseline of, you know, keep your voter files and trudge around and get hold of your voters and do direct mail. That stuff uh, uh, is sort of pretty robust and is quite well worked up over the years without any any sort of very clever psychology to be put on top of it. I agree. And there's a beautiful story in there about the sort of the trust we have in data and how we how we really believe that data is almost like you, you can you can 
take data and you can divine the future from it. And there's a, there's a, it's kind of a horrible story, but it's also very funny at the same time in a horrible way. And it's about McNamara and the Pentagon. And they decided that they would sort of build this large computer model where they had everything that pertained to the Vietnam War. Uh, to figure out if they would win or lose the Vietnam War. The number of water buff buffaloes, weapons, paths, roads, everything. They fed it in and punch cards and got one punch card back. And this was this was in, in uh, you know uh, in the middle of the Vietnam War. And the punch card said, "You won in 1965." <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it, it contained the number 42, which <laughs> uh, which would have been fun. You don't know what the question was. No, and so so clearly bizarre wrong and yeah. it's a good reminder I think that that those who fear that we are becoming predictable and easy to manipulate uh, are probably the easiest to predict and manipulate so do we have to have another, a, a last book oh absolutely uh, just on that theme which is another one that I'm, I'm going to reread this summer which is a book called How Voters Feel by a, a Professor Stephen Coleman, who is a, a very good, he's actually the world's first professor of e-democracy back in the day in, in Oxford Internet Institute. And I think he's now at Leeds University and as an old friend. But this, just to your point, that is a brilliant book because what Stephen does is he goes out and talks to voters about the act of voting and how it, mm. uh, and, and how it makes a feel. And he talks about it as a, it's a performance, there's a performative element to it. And I've seen some of the work he's done, amazing sort of interviews with people. And this is the bit we all forget almost coming full circle to where we start a conversation again, is that, um, you know, you've got all this data and you've got these sort of nudge and push all these buttons, blah, blah, blah. But actually it's about individual human beings yeah. and, and how they feel on the day of an election or the day on which they cast their, their ballot. And there's so much wrapped up in that. Um, everything from you, you know the, the the older woman who feels uh, the most the strongest emotion she feels is one of gratitude to those who fought for her to get the vote because she you know she has um, either herself or, or uh, her, her immediate family were not able to have the right to vote. People from minorities for whom this is, this is really significant, through to people who are embarrassed and ashamed to vote because they don't feel they understand enough about politics or that voting isn't for people like them. There's just this massive array. And he, in a very academic way, a proper rigorous academic way, sort of starts to try and, and, and understand that by talking to voters about the act of voting, uh, which I love because they say it's so different from, you know, somebody sitting there with a the machine and going, this is how you will vote because I'm going to push this button. <laughs> Uh, very, very different. So How Voters Don't Feel is yeah. academic, but very, very highly readable. And I'd strongly recommend it if you're into politics and elections. It'll give you some a, a completely new insight. I like it. I like it a lot. It's very good. Cool. Well, I think if you manage to get through all of these books, you have a pretty good summer, don't you? <laughs> I, I think so. Um, yeah, we just need a bit of sunshine and a bit less COVID uh, and a bit more relaxation and uh, a good pile of books. We should be all right. We'll be back in. Well, we will be back in September. We'll be back in between, Nicholas. Are we? I think, oh, it's a good question. Maybe what we do is we um, we take a little bit of a summer break and then we are back um, in August. I think yeah. September is too long. I yeah, really yeah. enjoy our conversations. <laughs> we should have a little break. So um, listeners, uh, if you allow us a few weeks off, we should be back later in August. Um, we'll be testing you on whether you read all of the books that we've recommended. Obviously. Uh, and we yes. shall carry on and return to our core theme. 
And you can find this podcast on your website, which is? Uh, coincidentally, this named after the core theme, www.regulate.tech. And I think it would only be fair for us to also have a list there of the books if you haven't been taking notes over the podcast. So make sure there's a list there too. Very good. Thank you so much. And uh, we will um, we will publish a new episode in the third or fourth week of August. And in between, enjoy. And we hope to have you back soon. Bye.